We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Cool. All right, guys. So hopefully you should all be open to the book of First Peter, chapter 1. Verse 1. What I want to do right now is I want to read just basically the section that we're going to be looking at. Uh, we're only going to be looking at a couple different phrases. I promise you as we begin to get into this, we'll be taking larger sections of Scripture today. It's just going to be a couple phrases that we'll look at. So I want to read, uh, just for sake of context, a couple different verses. It's actually technically the introduction of the book itself. So I just want to read the introduction within the context. Um, and then I'll pray and then I'll get to work uh, looking at some specific details of the text that I think are really, really essential and important for us. So 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, right now we ask you that you would just open our hearts to all that you have to speak to us. God, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are quick and willing and eager to want to learn and grow uh, into the story, God, that you've called us into. Uh, at the same time, God, I pray that you would make us even more so keenly aware of the rival stories that are all around us, that, that, that look persuasive, that have a powerful message and influence over our lives and over our culture, uh, but are not gospel stories. They're, they're not rooted in grace. They don't lead to salvation. They just lead to further tribalization and cannibalization and ultimately destruction. And so, God, right now, we humble ourselves before you as our great God and our great king. We don't want to be like those that Scripture says that the stone which the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone. So, God, I pray that you would help us to carefully observe the chief cornerstone, Jesus, and fall in love with you even more so than we've ever had in our lives before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. I'm pretty pumped about jumping into this, but I want to start by asking a question. Um, this is kind of like audience participation. How many of you guys have actually traveled out of country someplace else for like vacation or somewhere, mission trip, whatever? Okay, most of you guys. Um, how many of you guys, when you traveled, you know, just for a short amount of time, like sought to make that place that you had gone to for that short amount of time your final place of destination? In other words, you learned uh, 100% the culture, you learned the idioms of the culture, you learned the language of the culture, 100%. Nobody. There's a reason for that, because you had a homeland. You had a home that you knew that you would be returning to. So therefore, when you went to that place, your aim was to experience, to engage, to be part of, to uh, enjoy, to some degree, that culture. Not to necessarily imbibe it or to live according to it or to be one of them. That was not the idea. The idea was entirely different. And what I want to suggest to you is that what Peter is writing to or who he's writing to are a community of people that are following Jesus that are living in an ancient Roman militarized uh, superpower of a culture, of a community, of a kingdom called the Roman Empire. And he's writing to these people, and he's wanting to remind them that your first and foremost, your loyalty above and beyond anything else is Jesus and his kingdom. And his kingdom has taken even greater precedence than any other rival empire 
upon the planet, especially the one that you are currently occupying. And so what I want to do is we begin to look at this. Um, now, as we get into this story, there's going to be multiple layers of this idea that he's going to continue to uh, drive home. And so my intentions today is not to necessarily hammer it home, but to just bring home to you in a gentle way some of the initial topics and ideas that he wants for us to think about and consider. Um, again, as we go through this study, they're going to be recycled over and over and over again. So think of it like a, a vaccine, all right? Um, multi-layered vaccine where you go back multiple different times and you don't just get the entire dose all at once. It's not what I'm going to do this morning is not give you the entire dose all at once. Uh, this will be over a su- succession of weeks, if not months, of considering and thinking about the topics that are at hand. And they're so important that what I want to invite you to do is to at least listen to the teaching first and foremost. If you have opinions about that, or if you find yourself getting offended, yes, some of you may be offended. It's not my intention to offend you. It is my intention to just simply bring to you scripture, bring to the ideas based upon a Bible as being a Bible interpreter or Bible scholar, wannabe as much as I am, or at least one who is trying to bring to you good Bible scholarly information for us to begin to process and work through and think about critically. Uh, the, the topics that are at hand so that we can ultimately at the end of the day, our aim, just like what Peter said over the past couple of weeks, as we looked at the why he was writing and the what that he was attempting to accomplish. The why was he wanted to at the, as he said at the end of the entire book, chapter five, I think around verse 11 or 12, he says, I'm writing this stuff to you so that you would have your feet firmly planted. That's my hope is that you would have your feet firmly planted in the gospel Not firmly planted in American soil, not firmly planted as being an American, not firmly planted as being on the left or firmly planted as being on the right, firmly planted as being a conservative, firmly planted as being a liberal, but firmly planted as a follower of Jesus. That's my hope. So if you do find yourself throughout the duration or succession of us teaching, going through this series of having your conscience pricked, Or you're getting frustrated. That's not a bad thing. But what my encouragement to you is to pause, pray, be careful, be patient, be thoughtful, be considerate as to what maybe the Holy Spirit is wanting to speak to you. Ultimately, in terms of what does it look like for you to have your feet firmly planted in the gospel. That's my aim. That's the aim of Peter. And I'm confident that's the aim of what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in our lives as well. So with that being said, I want to jump in and I want to take a look at two specific things. And I want to start by saying this little sentence I had written down just so I don't get it wrong. That your geographical identity, meaning all of us, are probably Americans. We live in America. We live in California. We live on the Central Coast. That our geographical identity should never take precedence over our eternal identity. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're loyal to Jesus, if you're going to heaven when you die, I don't care what language you use to distinguish who you are or what you are, because there's lots of different ways in which you can describe it, but your geographical identity should never take precedence over your eternal identity. Exiles, like what we're going to look at in just a moment here, they get this. Or a visitor to another country, they get this. Their aim is not to go into that new country and to automatically identify, I'm Mexican, or I'm Costa Rican, or I'm Nicaraguan, or I'm El Salvadorian. Those are the last few trips that I've gone to on surf trips. 
I'd never go to those cultures and immediately identify as that. I enjoy the waves. I enjoy the pupusas. I enjoy the food. I enjoy all that goes along with that culture, but I do not identify as that. I don't have anything against any of the people groups that live in those countries. In fact, I love them, but I don't identify as them. I identify first and foremost as a follower of Jesus who has this unique opportunity to go into that. And here's what I think Peter's trying to capture our attention and our imaginations with. First and foremost, our eternal identity is to shape and to speak to and to define and to infuse an identity into us that takes precedence over even our geographical location. The exiles, they get this. People who are privileged to experience security, comfort, affluence, we easily forget this. And when I say we, I mean all of us. If you and I live in a place which, again, when you get settled in a position or a spot or a city or a house or a culture or a community, one of the very first things that you do is you begin to find comfort. And it's very easy in a status of comfort to forget your identity, to forget your other loyalties. And I think that's a very reason why writings like the book of First Peter are oftentimes either neglected or not thoroughly researched or thought about or considered or read by Westerners, though it is a text that's very much so cherished, especially by people groups that have been oppressed, people in Iran, people in North Korea, people in other places of the world where the church has actually undergone physical persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. So with that being said, what I want and hope for us to do is to have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us today. So what I want to do right now is I want to just look at two things here this morning. I'm going to wrap this up with some final thoughts. So number one, we'll take a look at our eternal identity, if we want to write in a parenthesis, your spiritual status. Secondly, we'll take a look at our geographical identity because both of these things are what Peter identifies. Or if you want to put this in parentheses as well, you can just describe social status. So number one, your spiritual status. Number two, social status. Or if you want another way to think about this, your eternal identity versus your geographical identity. So let's first of all take a look at your eternal identity. Listen to how Peter describes this. I want to read it again. Just pay attention. Listen to it. He says, I'm Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the most important sentence I want you to listen to. He says, to those who are elect exiles. First little section. The second section where he begins to identify the social status. Then he goes on to say, who are of the dispersion? of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So first, I want to take a look at his designation of a spiritual status. Who are you, first and foremost? If you are a follower of Jesus, how ought we to identify ourselves? Next week, we're going to get into this a little bit more robustly in terms of thinking about our identity. Um, identity is an essential part of what it means to be human. And I would even argue it's one of the most uh, um, contended for ideas in our culture today. In fact, I would even go so far as to say it's one of the reasons why social media is so popular today is because either you are out there trying to find an identity, so endlessly scrolling through someone that you can identify with or look at and say, I want to be like them. I want my hair to look like theirs. I want my car to look like their car. I want my life to look like their life. So you're searching for an identity or you're posting about your identity because you think you have it all together and you want everybody else to at least be brought into your own delusion. But the point that I want to make is this. Identity is an essential thing that Peter is saying, this is what it's all about, who you are. Next week. But right now I want to focus on just this initial plowing of this idea into our mind. So first of all, he describes those that are 
to whom he's writing. He says, you are elect exiles. Elect exiles. Two Greek words, electos, and then parapodimos are the two Greek words that he uses there. Number one, electos, uh, chosen or elect people, people that have been selected. Uh, this should not be uh, controversial language. What he's simply describing is those to whom God has selected, pulled out, called to be a part of his team, if you want to think of it that way. And then he uses the other language, exiles, parapodimos. Um, this word could mean a sojourner. So one of the reasons why even in me reading this to you guys, I'm reading out of the ESV, some of you might have different translations. I'll give you a couple other examples where it might read a little bit differently because of the way these two words can be translated. Here's what the New Living Translation describes. To God's chosen people who are living as foreigners— so it, in this particular context, uh, translates peripodimos, uh, sojourner, as who are living as foreigners, which I think is a health, helpful way to think about it. When you go, again, into another country, you are a foreigner. You're not necessarily trying to take up residency there, though you might, but even if you did as an immigrant— um, all immigrants have a story. They would tell you that when they came to a country where they're trying to be absorbed into, it's always difficult for them. Because on the one hand, they come bringing their ideas or backstory or background into a new culture that is either accepting and embracing or rejecting of them. And they're trying hard to make a life for themselves. Again, for many of us who have lived here, this is our home. We've made this place our source of comfort and all of that. It's hard for us to even put ourselves into a mindset of what it means to be an immigrant. So uh, the NIV describes it this way. You are God's elect exiles. Elect exiles. That's kind of similar to what we describe here. Uh, the Amplified Version, I like the way that de describes it. It says, to those elect who live as exiles, those who are chosen, elect by God, but they live as though they are exiles. Listen to how the, uh, I think it's the Common English Bible describes it. God's chosen strangers. A stranger. I don't like that language because we don't need any more descriptors to describe Christians as being strange. We already know we're strange. A lot of times that's the big issue is like, Christians are so strange. Of course they are. It's exactly what it says. We're strange. We're strangers. Um, joking. But though true. Um, here's a couple other ways. The King James Version describes it this way. Strangers that are scattered. Scattered strangers. You guys are getting the idea. Here's the way a couple different theologians have described it, just taking their own Greek uh, language and interpreting. It says this. One scholar describes it this way. God's elect strangers. Another one describes it as to the sojourning elect, those that are on a journey, though chosen by God. The big takeaway that I want for you to understand is that in all of these cases, the big idea is that these people to whom he's writing, though they might be residing throughout the Roman Empire, it's not their final home or destination. Do you understand that? To the degree you understand that, it's going to be helpful as we begin to go through some of the more challenging ideas and concepts that are going to be cropping up throughout this larger narrative. So what these words they conjure up for us are very similar and reminiscent to ancient Israel storyline. So for example, in the Old Testament, it refers to Israel as being God's chosen or elect on numerous occasions. So again, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the way that Peter writes is he's, he's deeply uh, connected to the history of the people of Israel. He's not writing. He's not making this up. Peter would say later, we're not, you know, we're not following devised myths or fables that we ourselves created. It's important to know this. Christianity was not created by Peter or a group of other apostles that were like, hey, Jesus is alive. We think, we hope. Let's create a new religion. That's not how Christianity started. 
these weren't people trying to like be subversive to the world around them and try to make money and say, let's start a new religion. It's a great way of making a lot of money. That was not what they were thinking. What they were doing is they were living into the story that they had already belonged, but they were following where that story took them. And as they followed the story of Israel, that story led to Jesus, who led to his life, suffering, death, resurrection, which led to them realizing we've got something to do. We have to do something with the reality of what's, what we've been brought into. This Messiah, this teacher, uh, this king has resurrected from the dead. They try to kill him. The Roman militaristic world superpower tried to destroy him and they succeeded. Yet Jesus would not stay down and he's our king. So where's this king who's resurrected taking us? And this is where Peter is basically standing up saying, we're an, eye, we're an eyewitness of this. We're recipients of this light that Jesus has come. So again, the storyline is really important. Listen to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 41 says this in verses 8 through 10. If you want to write this down, you can. Isaiah 41, 8 through 10 says, But you, Israel, you are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and I have not cast you off. This is all election language, by the way. This is God saying, you didn't deserve to be chosen, Israel, but I chose you. I selected you. I invited you in. Then he goes on to say, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will give you help and I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. The language that Yahweh God is describing through Isaiah the prophet is that Israel, though you did not once belong, now you belong. This is the same language that Peter's going to use. You Gentiles, you non-Jewish people, you once didn't belong, but now you belong. In the world that you live, you will not be accepted. That shouldn't shock us. That shouldn't come as newsflash to us. It should be part of our inheritance. Because again, we're not dropping in creating our own stories, we're receiving the story, we're being brought into the story, and that story involves being elected, but also being exiles, which means not really ever fully fitting in. Let me say this. If you feel like you ever fully fit in, that's a problem. In this world, in this culture, in a particular party, in the left-wing party, in the right-wing party, if you look at that and say, this is my home, this is where I can sit back and put my feet up on the desk and feel 100% comfortable, I would suggest somewhere within your mindset and theological framework is something that's not lining up with the heart of the gospel. Because none of these things will ever feel like fully home. We should always feel to some degree like we're in exile in the midst of this. And this is what Peter's going to say. Listen to how it also describes that this Christian identity would oftentimes be uh, more built out throughout the New Testament as well. So listen to what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Again, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones. Again, this is election language. God's saying, you're, you're my chosen ones. I've selected you to be part of my family. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other, even as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Oftentimes what we do as Christians, we read the language of what you should do. And we create moralistic ideas about that before we first are fully settled in an identity that's been given to us. In other words, our identity will ultimately shape what we do, who we are, how we act. 
So first of all, this is why I think Paul or Peter in this particular passage, as well as Paul throughout the rest of the New Testament, is really explicit in identifying first and foremost your identity, then moving from identity into action, what we're called to. So what I want to do right now is I want to move into the second section. We'll wrap it up with some final thoughts. Is this geographical identity? Geographical identity. In other words, your social status. So number one, we looked at the eternal identity or your spiritual status. Secondly, I want to take a look at the geographical identity or our social status. This is where Peter would go on to say, let me read it to you again. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Which is the second part I want to look at. He says, you guys are elect exiles who are also in or of living amidst these people. And then he lists a bunch of names, which are foreign to us. But these would have been names that would have been like saying, who live in San Francisco, who live in San Luis Obispo, who live in Bakersfield, who live in Avila Beach, who live, you know, in Grover City or Grover Beach, whoever. This is basically what he's saying. They would have been very identifiable by those to whom he's writing. And here's what he wants for them to understand is that though you live in these areas, they don't ultimately define you. You're elect exiles who are of the dispersion. The word that he uses there in the Greek is diaspora or diaspora basically means those that are scattered. Again, this kind of gets traced back even in the book of Acts where the church, as it was beginning to grow, as they were announcing the story of Jesus as the king, um, many of these Christians were being scattered uh, in oppressive manner all throughout the ancient Roman Empire. But it's important to note something I think that plays in the text here. Um, The ancient Roman Empire was not just something, some like small, horrible place to live. It was literally the beauty of the ancient world to live in a, to live in the Roman empire would have been amazing to live as a Roman in the Roman empire would have been even more amazing. It would have been the, 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 the peak of luxury to live in a Roman occupied city. Now, again, there's a downside to it. It was highly militarized, but the upside was it had roads, it had theaters, it had all sorts of forms of entertainment, bathhouses. The Romans were absolutely incredible when it came to their architecture. And therefore, that created the danger. Because if you were a follower of Jesus, elect, your temptation would be to take up the identity as a Roman. And so what I think Peter's trying to do is to say, as an elect exile who are of the dispersion of all of these areas, make sure you remember first and foremost who you are. So I want to end with some final thoughts, some closing thoughts with regard to the idea of what it means to be elect exiles living in America in 2021. So I was thinking about this over the past several weeks, if not months, if not many, many years, maybe even decades. Uh, there has been this growing, um, I think, rift. And I would even say influence that's kind of permeated into the larger American church. And it oftentimes shows its colors in very powerful and grotesque and I would even say embittered forms of ways. Meaning... That there's a tendency to create incredible divisions within the church. And it's not as simple as just simply saying the left and the right. But what I want to try to do is I want to break this down again. I'm just only going to touch on this briefly today. We'll continue to build this out over the next few weeks and months to come. Um, And I'll give you some final, like, 
homework. If you'd like to research this a little bit deeper, you can. And that's a very chilly wind. Um, so I'll wrap this up pretty quickly. But the point that I want to make is this, is that uh, I'll give you some resources that you can access on your own to dig a little bit deeper into this. But I'll break it down. There, I think there's two, if you want to think of it this way, two major poles or currents. Think of a current like in a stream that's pushing somewhere. In other words, if you do nothing, think of a river, standing in a river, that it will take you somewhere. If you go out swimming in the ocean, there's a current. Um, I grew up surfing Huntington Beach. That's where I grew up. And on big days, there was a massive current that would just take you down the beach if you're not careful. So when you're out surfing, you have to constantly paddle really hard. And if you're not paddling constantly, then you'll be down the beach. The worst is when it was foggy and all of a sudden you didn't, you weren't paying attention to where you're at because you can't see where you're at. And then you get out of the water and you realize you're like half a mile down the beach. Like, how did this happen? Well, what happened was you did not work hard enough to maintain your ground and the current took you. And I would suggest to you, there are at least two major currents right now in our culture that if you are not conscientiously aware of these things, they will take you somewhere. And that somewhere is somewhere other than the gospel. And so the two ones that I'll just, again, briefly touch on and address and give you some quick final thoughts, and we'll wrap this up, are number one, secularism. Or you can call it secular humanism, secularism. This basically, at the end of the day, if you're familiar with the works or the writings of a guy by the name of Charles Taylor, he's a philosopher, Christian guy, he's done a lot of research and investigation on this. He would describe this as the idea that humanism or human humanity is at the center of it. This is the idea where popular in our culture today that it's all about your authentic self. You discovering your authentic self. That's humanism. That's the idea where it basically says who gets to determine right or wrong in your life. Well, the humanists would say, or the secularists would say, you. You determine that. It's based upon your desires, how you feel that day, what your sexuality is kind of leaning you towards. That's who you are. Your identity is transfixed to that humanistic perspective. That's a current. It shows up in progressive left type politics. Again, don't get offended. Just listen. Just carefully think about and consider. But the opposite poll that I would suggest is equally damaging and destructive. And I'll give you three titles, three ways to think about this, but they're all kind of part of the same big ball of wax. Number one, I would describe it as American civil religion. Another way you can think about this is Christian nationalism. A third way to think about this is American folk religion. So I just gave you three titles for the big same thing. Number one, American civil religion. Number two, Christian nationalism. Number three, American folk religion. And this is the idea that at its center, again, Charles Taylor would describe this as basically, again, this is just big philosophical terms, neo-Nietzscheism, which is the idea of the Superman, the Ubermensch, if you're familiar with that language. The idea that, that at the center of this is a powerful human being that exerts himself that usually comes together in form of like nationalism, or if you want to think of it in white supremacy. The big idea is at the very center of this thinking is a narrative. Both is a story behind both of these that says either you as an individual are responsible and powerful for selecting your own course, your own future. And on the other pole is this thing that says our nation is powerful and mighty. In order to be a good person, you must identify with a nationalistic dream and hope of whatever the nation is that you reside in. Both of which I would suggest are very antithetical to the gospel. Christians, first century, it would be very awkward for them to sing a song like, I'm proud to be an American. But for them to say, I'm proud to be a Roman citizen. 
Please don't be offended again. I'm just asking you to please think about these things and consider them. That would have been a foreign song to them. A foreign ideology. And it's not to say that they could not celebrate or enjoy or love the beauty of Rome and all that Rome offered. It meant, though, that as Romans or as Christians living in a Roman territory or colony, their first and foremost primary identity-shaping factor was not Cappadocia, was not Bithynia, was not Rome, was not Caesar, but it was another king. A king that gave his life for them, suffered, died, and rose again. This is the story which Peter is inviting each one of us, 2,000 years later, to critically, carefully, prayerfully think about what story is shaping us. And as I close and I finish up, I want for us just to think about three things for us by way of action to consider. And I'll be done. Um, I mentioned a resource. If you'd like, there's a couple of them I would uh, recommend to you. Number one, uh, my friend Dave Lomas, uh, he pastors a church up in San Francisco. It's called Reality. Reality San Francisco. Check out their uh, website or their um, podcast. Just go to any podcast you know, platform, look up Reality San Francisco. It's episode 108, so it's like two weeks ago. It's actually called The Manifesto Against Civil Religion. Highly recommend it. It's really good. They're actually getting ready to go into a teaching on the book of Revelation, which is really what he describes as a manifesto against civil religion. Highly recommend it. Check it out. Another podcast I would highly recommend is uh, from a church in Portland, Oregon called Bridgetown. Um, They have a multi-part segment called This Cultural Moment. Could not more highly recommend it, this cultural moment. Again, it addresses the subject matter of secularism as well as the counter agent to that, which is sort of this super nationalism or American civic religion and whatnot. But three final things I want to finish with, and I'll be, I'm done. And I want to read a passage to close. Um, number one is identify, identify, just humbly identify where your heart is drawn towards. Each one of us are different. Some of us, just even the thought of questioning American exceptionalism, you bristle. The best thing for you to just identify, why, why is that? Why do you bristle? What affinity do you have to this country, this place of, of origin? Again, I'm not saying in any way, don't be anti-American. Be a great American. Love this country. Pray for this emperors. Pray for the king. Be a good American. But don't find your identity as that. Some of you might lean towards this. Some of you might lean more towards an anti-American approach, which is like more progressive liberalism on the left. More towards this aim of secularism. That I, I, you get to choose who you are based upon your sexual identity or ideas or thoughts. And you bristle against that, and you push against that, and you feel that uh, agitation. I mean, look, bottom line is we might not even have a church here next week because you're just like, no one's coming back because you're all offended. I hope that's not the case. My hope would be that you would just carefully think through this and prayerfully consider. Again, I'm not advocating for either polls. What I am advocating for is the kingdom of Jesus and what he's inviting us to consider. Again, Peter's writing to a bunch of people living for Jesus in the midst of the greatest empire up until that point in the world on the planet. And he's wanting to anchor their story, not into the ancient Roman story. That involves a pantheon of gods and power and might and conquering and bloodshed 
and bravery and pride and ego, but into another story that involved a crucified king. Second thing, number one, identify which you are most tempted towards and just hold on to that. Don't make, you don't need to make any decisions about what that is right now. I'm just asking you to just hold on to it and pray through it. Just humbly say, God, if this is where I'm leaning, if these are the things that I'm more prone to be influenced by, if these are the uh, political ways in which my mind is leaning because this is my friend group, these are the people that I know, these are the ones that are on my Facebook feed, these are the part of my world, my family, these are the ones that influence me, then I'm just asking you to please just hold on to those and think through them prayerfully and carefully over the next few weeks, if not months. Secondly, uh, be captivated in a fresh new way by the revelation of Jesus. I want to read a passage in just a moment. We'll finish on that. Then thirdly, what Peter's going to say over and over again, come out from among them and be separate. So we looked at last week, the word that we'll look at even more so as the weeks to come, the word holiness, be holy, come out from whatever nation, whatever ideology, whatever powerful storyline that is anything other than the gospel storyline. And I want to finish with reading a passage. I'll have the worship team come on up and we'll wrap it up with this. Just listen to this carefully as we tune our hearts now to begin to partake of communion. If you're in our online audience, again, hi, welcome. So glad you guys are here. This is a time for you guys to now go ahead and grab uh, a cup and some juice and a cracker or something like that. We will partake of communion together. How about we all stand? And if you would like to uh, receive the bread and the cup, uh, please be my guest and grab one or receive it. Don't, don't grab it. Keep your hands out of that thing, they'll give it to you because I love you and we want to keep things sanitized. Um, and we'll partake together. But then the last thing is to come out from among them, which involves this process of repentance and returning. Repent from those ideological sources that might be influencing and shaping how you think and return. So repent from those things and then return to the goodness of Jesus. And I want you to listen right now as I finish this little section, and then we'll sing, uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 on. Uh, John, who was a friend of Peter, by the way, good friend. They were constantly in rival with each other, by the way, like good brothers are. But John, later on in his life, he is exiled. He is in exile on an island, probably for his faith. Um, the empire wanted to silence John. They were tired of him talking about this resurrected Jesus. So their solution was literally the solution of Amazon and Facebook and Twitter. Ex uh, cancel. Cancel. Just cancel. That's what exile means. They try to cancel John on an island. And here John on an island is thinking about the king, Jesus. And listen to what he goes on to say. Then Jesus is going to begin to address the churches, seven churches, that are throughout the region. Again, these are, these are churches living in Roman colonized areas. Think Newport Beach. Think San Francisco. The more elite district. Think the more educated areas of town. Think San Luis Obispo. There are Christians living in these areas. Jesus writes to them and he says, hey, I have this against you as my people. He doesn't write to the broader culture. He writes to his church saying, come out from the culture that's devouring you. And be separate. Be my people. How do we do that? I think it begins first and foremost by receiving a fresh revelation of Jesus the King. Listen to what John writes. John, 
am your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God for the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then he goes on to say, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands I saw one that was like the son of man. Seven golden lampstands are no doubt believed to be the churches or emblematic of the churches. Then I saw in the middle of the lampstands one like the son of man. He was clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his waist. His hairs of his head were white like wool. His eyes like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first, I am the last, the one living, for I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He's going to go on to give his revelation to the churches. My hope for you as a follower of Jesus, if that's what you are, that you would have ears to hear what the Spirit would have to say to you. For you to be aware, what are the currents, what are the storm fronts that are popular, what are the voices in our culture that you are naturally drawn towards that are not the voice of Jesus, of which the Spirit of Jesus might be saying to you right now, come out from among them, be separate, be amazed by the glory of Jesus. So Jesus, right now we come humbly to you as our King. We're aware, Lord, there are there are profoundly powerfully powerful and persuasive voices in our world. And God, all of us here, we all of us here, no one is exempt. All of us here have given our attention or our allegiance to some degree. To some of these voices when what we truly want, Lord, is to be devoted to the voice of the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. So even right now, Jesus, we confess to you our need. Confess our sin. Lay it at your feet. We bring these things to you. If you're here this morning, maybe you're not even a Christian, and you want to trust this, this King, it's as simple as you just confessing whatever former allegiances or sins or misdeeds that you've ever done or your disbelief. Lay it at his feet and know that he loves you, forgives you. Just ask him to make his himself real in your life. Let's sing.